Blog Talk Radio. Hello, uh, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Suttles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. Um, over the years, I have been a very um, adamant supporter, a very adamant advocate for uh, getting public utilities involved in the um, in, in the broadband effort. And I think that um, we really need to look at what role these uh, entities can play in your community uh, because there's a lot to be there's a lot to be offered there. Today we're going to uh, look in depth in this whole issue of what's the role of, of public utilities, how can we cultivate that, and how can we make the best of that. And with us today, uh, our guest is Curtis Dean, who is the Broadband Services Coordinator for the Iowa Association of Municipal Utilities. Curtis, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Craig. My pleasure to be on. So now, let's start with actually a little bit of an overview of what your uh, association is and does, and uh, then we can kind of jump from that to talk about um, the, the role of public utilities in the broadband effort. Sure. Well, uh, the Iowa Association of Municipal Utilities was uh, founded in 1947, and it was uh, formed to provide support for the community-owned uh, utility services within the state of Iowa. Uh, we've got about 550 members, and that's essentially almost every city in Iowa that operates any form of utility, water, electric, natural gas, uh, broadband and also stormwater, and it makes us the uh, we're the largest uh, organization of its kind in the country. There are other states that have statewide municipal utility organizations. Just because there are so many municipal utilities in Iowa, we're we're one of the largest. So um, we we provide support for all of our members on all of those t- uh, topics. Uh, you know, we help represent their interests in the Iowa legislature. We help monitor any regulatory or legal developments that are going to affect them. Uh, we actually have a uh, job training and safety division that provides hands-on uh, OSHA qualified training and other types of job training for employees across the state. Um, uh, right now, in fact, at our office in Ankeny, we're operating our annual electric underground workshop. So we have. Uh, Utility representatives from across the state are actually digging holes and uh, and uh, and learning new skills about how to operate underground utilities. So we do a lot of things like that, and and uh, for all of the members, uh, stormwater, water, electric, gas, and uh, of course broadband. Mm-hmm. Now, how long, from your view, have uh, public utilities been involved or getting involved with these broadband initiatives in various parts of your state? Mm-hmm. Well, probably the first uh, uh, utility to, 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 to initiate a broadband utility was Cedar Falls in the mid-1990s. Um, and Cedar Falls uh, Utilities operate, has had operated very successfully uh, uh, natural gas, electric, and water for many, many years. And in the mid-90s, they felt like their community was being Ill, ill-served by the uh, existing uh, both cable and telephone providers um, and that they knew at that time their vision for the community was that broadband uh, services uh, were going to be vital for continued growth and economic development. So they um, they were one of the first, and I think the first in Iowa, to actually go out and build a network. And uh, mm-hmm. Cedar Falls built their first network uh, again in the late 90s. They um, built a hybrid fo- fiber coax system. Uh, similar to what cable operators all over the country use, um, and they use that new network to uh, provide uh, video and data services to the people in Cedar Falls, which is a community of about 35,000 in northeast Iowa. Um, mm-hmm. Wildly successful, um, and, and so successful, in fact, that um, within just a few years they captured you know, more than three-quarters of the customers in that community that wanted those services. Um, so they were kind of the first, and then you had a series of other communities that came 
immediately after that. Haywarden, Iowa, a community of about 1,500 in northwest Iowa, was uh, actually the first uh, municipal utility in Iowa to offer telephone service. Um, and then uh, the late 90s to around 2003, you had a, quite a number of communities that built broadband networks in, in the state. Um, and and so, so that's kind of the, the background on the history. Most of them were driven by consumer demand on the local level for better cable TV service. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, um, this was at the beginning of when cable companies rates were escalating on normally on a 10% or more per year basis and and citizens and this is also the time when small cable companies were being gobbled up by larger cable companies and they kept getting bigger and bigger and so people felt they were losing some of that control not only over content but uh control over the pricing structure so um, those communities said you know what we can do this ourselves look at cedar falls is doing it and so they they um had a referendum. The referendum is, is required under Iowa law to establish a new utility. Uh, and then once that new utility was established, most of them moved forward and built one, built a network uh, to operate. Mm -hmm. So they they started out of necessity. They have accelerated out of necessity. What's been some of the uh, notable successes in terms of the impacts of these networks, you know, in, in Iowa. Sure. Well, I think uh, I'll start with Cedar Falls because not only are they our uh, largest uh, broadband community that's a municipally broadband, served by municipal broadband, but again, being one of the first. Um, what Cedar Falls discovered was fairly rapidly after they built their network um, that they their community started to see uh, growth where neighboring communities were not seeing it. Um, Cedar Falls is physically connected and adjacent to Waterloo. Uh, Waterloo, a much larger community of about 85,000 people, um, and Cedar Falls is this much smaller community just off to its northwest, but they're physically connected. It's like one metro area. Mm -hmm. Well, Waterloo had been a traditional industrial hub uh, in the state of Iowa and, and had always had a lot of... Uh, heavy industry jobs. Uh, John Deere, for example, had normally had always operated a, a big uh, operation building farm implements in Waterloo. Um, when the recessions uh, hit in the 80s uh, and in the early 90s, and the farm industry was affected by that. You know, there were a lot of job losses in the Waterloo-Cedar Falls area. Um, when Cedar Falls moved forward, built their broadband network, what they found was while Waterloo's economy tended to still lag behind, they, Cedar Falls is very successful at seeing new industrial and economic development growth within their limits, city limits. And mm -hmm. they, they've credited a lot of that to the fact that, uh, that uh, a company could move to Cedar Falls and have access to advanced broadband from a local company at a fair and reasonable price um, and, and a company that wasn't afraid to uh, work with them to come up with custom solutions. So Cedar Falls, because you know, in large part because of the existence of municipal broadband, they've seen their economy uh, be be more successful than neighboring Waterloo. Even though Waterloo's bigger and has some other things going for it, so um, that's a that's a pretty good success story for the state of Iowa, and 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 a pretty good success story for municipal broadband in general. Um, mm -hmm. My background is I, I was part of the establishment of the municipal broadband system in Spencer, Iowa. And Spencer is a community in northwest Iowa of about 11,000. And again, like some of the other communities, we got started in the late 90s because people were upset about cable prices going out of control and not getting the service they felt they, de they deserved. Um, the old line we used to use is you shouldn't have to call 1-800-WHO-CARES just to ask a question about your bill. Um, and so, Spencer, when we built our system in, in 2000, um, it, it, it immediately we had, you know, high take rate residential customers, which, of course, was essential to making it successful. But we also uh, noticed that businesses started for the first time using the Internet um, because they could get a fast, affordable broadband connection, and um, whereas before it was, 
not as easy to do. Uh, we had a number of businesses in, in, in Spencer that um, uh, thrived because of that. We had a local printing plant that was able to, um, because they could have fast broadband, it was easier for them to exchange large digital files with customers all over the country. Um, we had a local um, Internet uh, marketing agency that, um, because we were able to, at Spencer, give them a, a direct fiber connection and offer them a, a big, fat Internet pipe, they were able to grow their business tremendously and, 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 and you know, doubled or tripled their staff over a period of a few years. Um, it was, uh, you know, an important part of retaining existing businesses in, in Spencer, and I think in other communities we could see that as well. Um, if you looked at the communities in Iowa that have municipal broadband, I would, I would venture a guess, although I haven't crunched the numbers, that their population losses have been slower than the population's losses in other cities that don't have it of similar mm-hmm. size. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, so the economic development success story is is one that, you know, in, it, it, there are a few specific examples. I think the real success story in any of these communities has been what is the community enhancement that is brought by having a municipal broadband system, because it really does go beyond the numbers here. Um, the same way that if a community says, we want to improve the quality of life in our town, so we're going to build a new aquatic center. Uh, a new aquatic center, you can't really point to that as saying this created this many jobs at this high wage, but you can point to it as making your community a place that people want to live, work, and play. And so mm-hmm. I think that the communities that have built broadband, that's one more bullet in their chamber, so to speak, when they're going out and trying to get people to move to their community, getting businesses to relocate to their community, or getting businesses to stay in their community, is that they've got this fast, affordable infrastructure that they may not get elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Very uh, interesting. I mean, you, point, you point out a good um, or an interesting fact, which is it's often not a quantitative case that is made for the success of these networks. It is a qualitative, uh, I guess by inference, kind of you know comparison of what's going on in City A versus Cities B, mm-hmm. C, and D that don't have uh, broadband in City A does, or the yep. the fact that um, you know there's a there's a notable interest of people to move or to stay in an area because of of having good broadband. Is that right. a pretty fair assessment? I think that's a, that's a, exactly a fair assessment. It is becoming more and more important for everyone that they have access to good broadband when they're looking at a place to live. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, while you know years ago it was mostly businesses that might make their decisions on location by um, looking where good broadband was available. I think more and more citizens are looking at that. Um, uh, when I moved to uh, the Des Moines, Iowa area here a couple of years ago to go to work at IAMU after leaving Spencer, I started house hunting. And of course, like all good people do, I house hunted online, right? So I would go out online, I would look through the online listings, the multi-listing service. I would identify homes that appealed to me. The first thing I would check before I would even go look at that house or contact a realtor was what broadband is available at that address. And if it didn't have reliable broadband, fast broadband, I wasn't even going to give it a look. Give it a look. Um, and I think that's becoming an increasingly important factor. Um, and if if you are a uh, a person who is uh, needs a fast service, a reliable service, because a lot of times the reliability is much more important to people than the speed. Um, and you're looking at your choices, and you have choice A is this community with a municipal broadband system that's maybe fiber to the home and operated by people that you can go to church with and you can meet them at the local cafe for lunch versus this company that's based in Middleton, New York, that has uh, you know three million subscribers and and, and 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 keeps their network just good enough so that people don't have a riot you know there's a difference mm-hmm. between that you might go with the local provider the the municipal community that has a municipal broadband system because you know that you know you're not going to have as many outages you're going to probably pay a little less money for your service 
and you're probably more likely to keep up with the times as far as it's getting better service over a period of time because uh, the, the, those those smaller companies tend to uh, do do right by their customers. Mm-hmm. And would you say that the part of that reason for a higher quality of service is that the public utility is by default vested in the community? I mean, at a very personal level. Oh, absolutely, and. You know, we live in a capitalist society, and 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 that's a wonderful thing. Um, but there are certain things that are necessities of life that um, that there has always been a mentality of that that they should be operated as something that's in the public good only, and not necessarily as a high profit item. And um, you know, when you look at a municipal utility, what are their obligations? Well, first of all, their obligation is to pay the bills. They've got to bring in enough revenue to offset the cost to operate that utility. But beyond that, they're not obligated to satisfy a shareholder or to promise a 40% rate of return or to um, you know, uh, somehow create profit that then can um, generate interest in their stock. Their only, their only stockholder is the person who lives in that town. Mm-hmm. And the, the interesting thing about that, that is it, it, it provides for a high level of accountability because if, if you operate a privately owned cable system and you're in a thousand communities across the country and, and in one particular community, it's hard to hold that company accountable if they don't do a good job. Mm-hmm. But if you're a municipal broadband system and you don't do a good job in your community, you will be held accountable. Because in the end, it's the people that live in that community that have the final say. And those people could petition to dissolve that utility and sell that utility if they don't do a good enough job. And that's a high level of accountability. It's local accountability. So that really uh, means that the, 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 the municipal broadband systems, uh, when operated correctly, can do a better job and, and, and not have to worry about a profit. Mm-hmm. This is a bit of a, a, a tangent, but I'll come get us back online here in a sec. Is it better to focus on selling services to current businesses or chasing after new businesses? And I, I say this in the context of, um, you know, a public utility is used to serving its, you know, existing community. And it doesn't necessarily, to the best of my knowledge, get into a lot of, you know, chasing after new business and so forth. There are other departments or other agencies that do that, and they just kind of are there. Yeah. Is that does that hold true with um, with broadband? Do when when utilities start serving um, or serving up broadband, are they primarily community focused, or do they engage in some aspect of you know trying to draw new businesses in the town? Sure. Um, I think that the the answer to that is yes, <laughs> and here's why I say that. First of all, um, you know I think most uh, most research I've seen shows that uh, most new jobs are created in a community by businesses that are already there. So um, you obviously need to make sure that the businesses, in this case the employers, are are being taken care of because they're the ones that are going to keep your community vital. And keep it, uh, you know, moving forward and growing. Um, and so, yeah. So I think um, most municipal utilities would focus most of their attention on making sure their local existing businesses are taken care of, getting the level of service they need. However, mm-hmm. one thing that's really important to know is that in 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 cities where there's a municipal utility, whether it's a broadband utility or not, generally that municipal utility is also if not the primary, one of the primary drivers of economic development. Um, and that, 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 uh, that support comes through monetary assistance, that support comes through um, personnel assistance, um, and, and um, in the case of municipal broadband utilities, it's you know, working with the local economic development people to make sure that when they're out talking to companies about coming to their town, that they can know enough about what they have to sell that aspect of it. Um, but, uh, you know, many of the communities, you know, most of the communities in Iowa that have a municipal utility 
it's that municipal utility that is providing a good chunk of the financial support for the economic development group or regional agency or whoever is out there knocking on doors trying to draw uh, new businesses to their area. Mm -hmm. Very interesting indeed. This is a um, – I don't know if, if people have really thought about that outside of the, you know – Areas like Chattanooga and so forth, where people clearly see, you know, here's a public utility. But in, in a state like Iowa, well, I guess I should say in a state like Iowa, you also have the advantage of having Cedar Falls, you know, being in this space for a long period of time. But do you think mm -hmm. in other other states that people look to their um, public utilities, or is this a new concept for them to think about public utility as a deliverer of broadband services? Well, I think it's it's a growing trend. Um, I think, you know, we have 28 operational broadband utilities in Iowa today. Uh, there are a bunch of cities that have approved referenda to do the same thing, but they never actually build anything for whatever reasons. Most of those reasons are local reasons. But, mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, you know, I, I believe there are probably more municipal broadband systems in Iowa than any other single state in the, in the country. Um, but uh, I think that uh, anywhere you have a municipal broadband system, you're going to see that, that, that utility be a strong supporter of that community growth, community development. Uh, we just have a lot of them in Iowa. Mm -hmm. And and um, one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons we do have a lot of them in Iowa, quite frankly, is that our state legislature has not bought into the ALEC argument that municipal utilities should not compete with private telecommunications companies mm -hmm. um, through through uh, wise, uh, uh, I think, very uh, wise uh, political moves. Um, by our state legislature, our governors over the past few years, we've been able to hold off on that anti-municipal legislation that you see uh, proposed and in many cases approved around the country. So Iowa's very much a home rule type of state. The state government takes a hands off in many cases to say, you know what, local government, you want to do something, you can do it as long as you do it in, you know, there's some parameters there. But they haven't passed some of those restrictions that that have happened in other states. Mm -hmm. Now there are some requirements, though, right? Don't you? You mentioned there there's a referendum that other towns in Iowa held after the Cedar Falls mm -hmm. network came online. What exactly is the law as it pertains to municipalities and public utilities owning networks in sure. in Iowa? Yeah. Well, here in the state of Iowa. Any uh, to form a new utility or consequently to get rid of a utility, you have to have a referendum, and it needs to be a public vote. Uh, it is a, a majority approval, so 50% plus one vote, and that officially establishes that that city has that utility, whether it be electric, water, gas, or whatever. Um, then uh, once you have that legal authority under Iowa law, basically – all you would have to do then to build the network is to go through the, the due diligence of engineering a system and, and, and taking bids and then finding a way to finance it. Um, most of the existing broadband systems in Iowa um, started with the referendum, but we do have a couple that were actually grandfathered in um, that operate broadband utilities that never had or, or didn't have to have a referendum, and they were communities that actually had built the only cable system that town had many, many years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. One of them is Bellevue, Iowa, where the uh, Bell city of Bellevue had operated a cable system back since the 80s, before there was a requirement for a referendum. And so uh, Bellevue over the years has continued to operate their system. They've upgraded it. They've built fiber to the home, and, and they never had to have a referendum. But other communities have had them. Um, the, 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 the legal steps, the legal barriers are really not that great in Iowa. It's, it's always going to be the financial barrier, which is, okay, we have legal authority to operate a utility. Now, how the heck do we pay for it? Right. Um, and that's, that's been the holdup for many of the communities that have done the, the first step, the referendum, 
but have never done the second step, which is the actual deployment of a network. Hmm. Now let's talk about the mechanics of moving over from a gas or electric or whatever utility into the broadband business. What kind of changes have to happen within the utility uh, that uh, will either, you know, enable them to move forward faster or becomes a challenge to them moving forward? Yeah. Well, there are a number of challenges. Um, one that I would cite right off the off the bat is what I always call institutional envy. And that is the fact that if you come out of the gate and you build a brand new broadband utility, guess what? You're going to hire new people. And those new people are going to drive newer trucks. And they're going to have the newer tools. And they might even have to build new offices to make room for these people. And so those people might get the newer offices. So in a small town where you maybe have 15 or fewer people working in that entire utility operation, now the staff size just went up 25%, and all the new people who don't have in 30 years got all the new toys. So there's that institutional envy that, that has to be overcome because there's a built-in resentment in some cases to the old guard that the new people are getting all the fun stuff. So that's <laughs> and that sounds silly, but it's absolutely a barrier, and, and, and we faced it in Spencer. I know they faced it in other towns where they added a new utility, and there was a lot of whining that went on about, well, geez, why does a new, uh, they get a new truck, and geez, why don't I get a new truck? I'm still driving the same truck I had for four years. Yada, 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 yada. Um, so that's, that's one of the barriers uh, uh, to, to getting into it. Um, uh, another barrier is that... Um, you, most municipal utilities, and, and I'm talking about electric, water, natural gas, stormwater, although there are not very many stormwater out there, they are used to operating as a monopoly. A benevolent, benevolent monopoly, by the way, but a monopoly on, nonetheless. Mm -hmm. so the entire employee base is used to operating as essentially an order taker. A person comes into the office, they have one choice for electricity. They have to come to your office to get it. They don't have much to choose from. It's either on or off, right? You don't have 15 packages of electricity for them to buy. So they have to. Uh, the, the people working and interacting with those customers are doing so knowing that those customers have no choice. They have to come to talk to you. Now, you take that whole, you operate your entire utility that way with that monopoly mentality. Now suddenly, you get into broadband, and now instead of being only electricity company in town, there may be two landline cable companies, there may be one or two telephone companies with wires in the ground, and oh, by the way, there are two satellite providers of video, and oh, by the way, you can get wireless internet from a satellite, or you can get wireless internet from this mobile company, or from that fixed wireless company. So it's a huge institutional change. You, you're, you're, the entire staff or the new people you bring in have to become salespeople. They can no longer be order takers. They have to be able to be uh, consultative salespeople that can guide that customer to the correct solution for their needs. So that's a huge, that's a huge change for, for, um, for new utilities that are getting into this if they've never been in the competitive business before, and now they are. Uh, a lot of growing gains that cities go through when they do that. Interesting. Now, oh, by the way, uh, when you know you say you have to pass a referendum in order to to start a utility, are there people that will start a utility just for broadband? Um, I, I'm trying to think off the top of my head in Iowa. I think all of our utilities in Iowa had a previous utility of some sort before they built broadband. Okay. But we do have a couple of communities right now that do not operate or they only operate a water utility that are considering getting into the broadband business. So um, traditionally, you know, most of, if you look at the environment in Iowa, most of the broadband utilities had electric utilities before they ever got into broadband. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and so with a few exceptions, um, they already have that institution, that base of, uh, you know, they have trucks and they have people who know how to hang wires or dig to bury wires. 
uh, et cetera. So, um, but there are communities now that that did not get in in the first wave that are considering it that don't have an electric utility. Mm-hmm. Is by by the way, are are electric utilities better structured for broadband than say water or gas, or, or is it pretty much the same? You know, overall internal operating structure. You know, from one utility to the next. Well, I think with the internal operating structure, probably it doesn't. It wouldn't matter what type of utility you had. You're still used to billing customers, and you still are operating an office, and and you have some customer service personnel, et cetera. Um, the reason I think uh, in Iowa, at least, that and and I think this is something that Ch- Chattanooga has in parallel even though they're not in Iowa, is that having an electric utility, an electric utility, and to a lesser extent a water utility, already has to have a telecommunication infrastructure. You can't operate a modern electric utility in the 21st century if you cannot communicate with the devices on your network. Uh, And really, it is a network. It's just dumb electrons versus the smart electrons we send over uh, uh, copper or fiber. So... The, uh, the the electric utilities out there had some sort of communication network in place, that um, so they're already used to dealing with some of that. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, you know many of the ones that 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 later built an entire broadband system started out where they built fiber, say between their office and all their uh, substations, and that was the core ring from which they then branched out later after a referendum and built retail service out to home businesses. Okay. Yep, that was makes sense. Huh. Uh, it was interesting to note actually uh Chattanooga yesterday slashed the price of a gigabit down to seventy bucks or sixty nine ninety five, however they do that thing, that pricing thing. They basically are matching. Are they the hiring? Because now I want to live there, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, My coworker well, just said, no, boost. you can't leave. <laughs> I'm sure there will be a boost in business there for, for them yeah. who need uh, you know, support. But uh, it's, it's interesting watching the Chattanooga story because they seem to have wound so much of the what I'll call the community apparatus, the chamber, the downtown association, various incubators and so forth, into a a collective marketing effort for the city. I mean, they have, you know, when you go there, you will find two or three different organizations uh, all pitching in together for, you know, either pitching a new business or marketing the city, you know, as a great place for innovators and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. Are they are they kind of different in the sense of, you know, weaving their public utility into kind of a multi um agency, multi organizational uh economic development push? Well, they are different, but they don't they don't have to be different. And what I mean by that is Chattanooga is a big town. It's bigger mm-hmm. than the biggest city in Iowa by far. And because of that, they probably have a lot of the institutional capacity and the personnel capacity to to operate a coordinated multi-agency uh, marketing public relations uh, effort. And they have certainly done an amazing job. I just I just watch Chattanooga and all the developments, and I just think, wow, they're like a marketer's dream the way they've done this. They've they've done an outstanding job. But you look at the average municipal utility in Iowa, that average municipal broadband utility. There's less than 5,500 people in those towns. Um, so their 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 staff may consist of five or six people in the office, two or three field crew, and that's it. Um, and, and, and of all the municipal broadbands in Iowa, there are only really four of them that have their own dedicated full-time marketing person on staff. So it, 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 it makes it more difficult for a small community to do that when there is they don't have the they don't have the revenues to support that uh, sort of comprehensive marketing program. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the things that I try to work with our members most closely on because I used to be a marketing guy and I know how important it is. 
and you know I try to work with members about okay, no, you can't afford to hire you know a a marketing agency to do all these fancy things, but you can at the very least do these things to um to um market your program not only in, inside your community but to work with other agencies to make sure that they know your community has this. I think that you know when you look at I think Iowa's kind of a almost kind of a secret when when you hear you know um experts talk about municipal broadband a lot of times they don't even mention Iowa and we've got more of it probably than any other state. Uh, mm-hmm. If they do mention Iowa, they're probably going to throw out Cedar Falls because Cedar Falls does have an amazing marketing person who's done a really good job. Um, but the rest of them are doing many of the same things, but because they're too busy hooking up customers and and, and uh, those things, they don't have time to blow their own horn as well. Um, mm-hmm. And they should. They need to because it's important. Interesting, yeah. So now of all the things that you could do besides obviously – um, you know, putting together a strong operation and a strong customer service uh, entity, you know, within your, I should say, a a strong customer service structure within the utility, would you say then that the biggest impact um, beyond that is a question of how well that utility can market? It is. Um and especially in today's world, um, the 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 finances of being in the broadband business um, have changed a lot in the past 10, 15 years. Um, and you know, I'll give you an example. When um, I started out in Spencer, and in Spencer, our, over our network, we did voice, video, and data. So we were a local telephone company. We obviously were a cable company, and then we provided high-speed internet. Well, uh, for the first few years of our operations, um, the, uh, the, the money that we were making off of interstate access charges, um, which is where uh, a long-distance company pays the local phone company in order to terminate a call on their network, um, that, those access charges were a huge piece of the financial puzzle, and they allowed you to um, go net uh, revenue, uh, you know, go, go into the black really quickly. Um, those access charges because of FCC reforms are going to be going away. They're already gone way down, and they're going to go to zero at some point. Um, so that's a huge financial burden or, or loss on, on, on that. So um, a lot of the easy money or the free money, so to speak, that it takes to operate a, a municipal broadband system has gone away. So that's why it's even more incumbent on the small operators to do a better job of marketing within their community. Um, and in, in it, a lot of it is, you know, the word marketing scares some people, but really what you're just doing is talking about, you're, I'm telling our story. I'm mm-hmm. telling the story of my system. We have this service, and here's, it, it does, you, the, the average customer doesn't need to know or doesn't care how it works. They just want it to work, and they want to know what it's going to do for them. How's this going to make my life better? Um, and, and, and so, you know, we, you know, a lot of people are talking about, uh, you know, uh, all they do is they put out a brochure that says, okay, you can get a 10 megabit internet connection for $29.95. Uh, well, instead, you know, they should be and they need to be talking more about what, 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 is that, what does that mean in your life. That means, that means you can stream HD on your Netflix box. That means you can do this, that, or the other thing. Oh, you want to do this other thing? Well, that's where this next package is going to be a better fit for you. Um, and we've got to start doing a better job of marketing our products according to the consumer's lifestyle needs versus, you know, just some uh, random package. Um, so doing that is it takes some expertise. It takes some money. Um, fortunately, in smaller towns, it doesn't take that much money because there's very few places to advertise. But it right. takes a little more creativity. Um, you know, it, it takes uh, a well-informed staff that when a customer walks in the door, they can ask the right questions and guide that customer to the right package for their needs. Um, you know, it, it takes somebody to go out once a week and go not go visit the Main Street businesses and say, "Hey, how are you doing? Anything new going on in your business?" Oh, I bet you this would benefit you, this product or this service. Um, it means constantly looking at what are customers needing broadband for, and how can you facilitate them getting it, even if you're not the end provider. You know. 
there are a lot of cable companies are, uh, for lack of a better term, freaking out right now about Netflix. And they're worried about the linear cable TV business being hurt or going away eventually because everybody's going to stream their video. Um, the, 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 you know, some people see that as a scary thing. I look at it as a great opportunity because if you're a municipal broadband network, especially one that is fiber to the home, which several of ours are, you're in, you are in the driver's seat. You will always be able to provide that customer the sort of broadband speeds that they're going to need to do any of that over-the-top stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that the evolution of the of the of the service delivery model will eventually be that you're just the big fat broadband pipe, and your customers get their content from wherever they want to get it, but they got to come to you. You're the highway, and um, so changing the how they market those services to to adopt that new uh, that new kind of approach, I think, is going to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, earlier today I had a conversation with some folks about um, the value of separating the infrastructure from Internet access and content services. So, mm-hmm. in essence, taking the, the physical pipes, the fiber cables and all of that, and treating them as an infrastructure project or investment, and then having a separate entity, primarily private sector entities, provide the access to the Internet, provide content, you know, enable the running of certain applications, so forth, and so on, mm-hmm. is, is from the utilities perspective, is that, I don't know, does that make sense? Because whenever you read about utilities and being in the broadband business, they are indeed selling all of those services. But mm-hmm. is there maybe a, a rationale or a case that can be made for separating them out? Yeah, I think you could make that case. Uh, in fact, one of our members, Indianola Municipal Utilities, is using that model. Uh, Indianola Utilities is building the fiber-to-the-home infrastructure, but they're not going to be the end provider. They're working with another company that is licensing capacity on their system to provide voice, video, and data. Um, that was a model that worked for Indianola. Um, the, the, the problem with that model working in many other cases is um, – the cost to build the network, you've got to have a certain amount of revenue uh, to pay back the debt you have to accumulate to build that network. Well, where's mm-hmm. that revenue going to come from? Um, if, if, that, if the revenue requirements can be supported by just selling capacity to third-party vendors, then, yeah, that makes sense. But if you can't do it that way, then you have to get that revenue by being the provider itself and having a little margin on each of the services. Mm-hmm. So so that's why I think I think it's been, an, in many cases, an economic reality that you have the municipal broadband infrastructure owners are also the service providers. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's one factor is there's got to be enough revenue to support the investment. The other thing that I think is is evident is that in many cases – the, the 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 citizen of the community, the customer, is going to demand that if you're going to build this infrastructure, we want to do business with you, not with XYZ Video or John's Internet Company. We had this in Spencer because when we built our network in Spencer, we decided on the Internet side we wanted to be open access. So we invited um, Internet service providers to come in and – they would pay us a licensing fee to deploy service over our network. And when we started out, we had five different companies providing ISP services over our network. So our customer would come in to sign up, and we'd say, great, you want Internet? Here are the five ISPs you can choose from. Here's their marketing literature. Here's their phone number column if you want to. You tell us which one you want, and we'll get you set up. Well, that model worked pretty well. The problem was is almost immediately people begin asking, well, why can't I just get it from you? And we would say, well, we decided to operate an open access system, and so we're making, you know, we're making our customers choose, choose a provider. Um, and they didn't like that. So after the first three years of doing that system, we, were, um, we ended up um, becoming one of the ISPs. We didn't shut the other guys out. We said, you can still choose company A, B, or C, 
but we're also a company too. And when we did that, everybody moved to us. And they did it because they saw it as the money staying locally. So there was a political aspect to that that um, because of consumer demand, uh, I think they still have in Spencer one other open access ISP, but the rest all chose not to do it anymore because they lost all their customers to, uh, to SMU. Mm-hmm. Is it so possible? I think those are a couple of factors in in I, I like the open access model myself personally, mm-hmm. um, if it can pay its way. Right. These are expensive and networks, obviously. That's uh, and that that's fair. I I uh, see where that makes a lot of sense. I um, and, am wondering. And you know, it's an expensive network, even if you're not making a profit. <laughs> so imagine well, sure. if you're a company that needs to have a rate of return to show your shareholders, and you want to build a fiber to the home system. Uh, unless you've got huge economies of scale, or you're able to do things a lot better or uh, cheaper. Um, yeah, it's it's not cheap to put uh, a network in, although it's less expensive now than it was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Is there a case where perhaps a nonprofit building the network and then having the public utility um, own and operate it makes sense? Because there you are removing the the expense or the the need to have to pay that back, particularly if the nonprofit, which is eligible for donations and contributions and grants, were to raise money that wouldn't have to be paid back. And I and I asked this right. question in the context of a project. So I'm I'm doing some work, you know, with the folks in the Tumla there in Iowa. And mm-hmm. a group of us went over to Steuben County, Indiana to see, you know, how they've done what they've done. And and their their strategy was to create a nonprofit that raised money for the network, but then there was no debt service because it was raised money. And then they right. went out to find a provider to provide services. And that's that's a mixed blessing kind of thing because because of the fact that mm-hmm. it's open access, some ISPs will be okay with playing on that and some won't. And you may end up having to struggle past getting maybe just the one or two ISPs. And as you were talking, a thought that kind of kicked around in my brain was, you know, because of the fact that the utility has that operating apparatus, you know, the the customer billing, the customer service apparatus, you know, trucks they can roll, so forth and so on, maybe a different way if there are utilities that are hesitant because of the money then maybe what would happen is in, in partnership with the Economic Development Agency or Community Foundation, which is the case in uh, Indiana, that you allow the nonprofit to take on the responsibility for building, basically fundraising, to, to, to right. raise money and right. build a physical network, and then you turn that structure, that physical structure, over to the utility, and then the utility steps in, and they're able to provide services and you know address whatever is coming down the pike in terms of over the top services and so forth. I know this is different, and I'm making this up as I go. Yeah, but but I'm curious what you think about that. Uh, you know, I don't know why that model wouldn't work. Um, really, you know, it's it it it's that coming up. Where do you get the money to build the network? You're either gonna mm-hmm spend cash that you have sitting around, you're going to borrow money to do it, or you're or you're going to let somebody else build it. You know, this is kind of a way of, you know, through the nonprofit organization, especially if you had a, a say you had a benefactor in a small community and, and they say, you know, I want to do, do something to make my community live long and prosper, so to speak, and they've got, mm-hmm. they can do a $500,000 seed donation or a matching grant or something like that. Uh, I think that would be a great model, and I think that you'd see communities um, be very smart to look to that model if, if it's something that's workable in their town. Um, you know, most of the most of the um, municipals in Iowa got their a lot of their startup funds through their electric utility, and mm-hmm. and so that has helped in those communities. But the communities that don't have an electric utility are looked at. Are, they have to look at either general obligation bonds, which are backed by taxpayers, which require another vote. Or mm-hmm. they have to look to revenue bonds, and after the 07, 08 financial market crisis, 
um, bond bond sellers are very leery about loaning anybody money or selling bonds on any kind of project. So mm-hmm. um, I think that nonprofit public partnership could be a very interesting model. I'd like to see that tried somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it's it's gaining favor. I think part of the issue that I don't think a lot of people know about it or understand, mm-hmm. you know, when they're reading about some of these broadband projects, that that's exactly what folks are doing. But if you look at EC Fiber in Vermont, that's a case of a nonprofit right. entity that runs that network. And um, you look at the, the Steuben County model, and there's a nonprofit entity created by the uh, Community Foundation that is driving. Mm-hmm. That particular project, um, and, and co-ops. Some of the some community co-ops are running broadband networks. But the large, I guess, driver has been the, you know the question of how do we pay for it. And so right. that that nonprofit entity uh, becomes a, a way in. Now it, it's somewhat time-consuming, and it is. Uh, you obviously have to do it right, so you got to you know hire a good lawyer, hire a good accountant to make mm-hmm. it work. But you know, as I kind of look at the big picture, you know there there is logic and there is precedence. And I figure when you can find both in any discussion related to, to broadband, you know I think that 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 merits some exploration. And absolutely, uh, yeah, because I think if you can get your mind wrapped around the nonprofit entity. And understanding that, you know, we can create nonprofit entities with an economic development mission. They can be established mm-hmm. for the purposes of, you know, funding or otherwise driving the economic development of a community. And it's all legal and it's logical. And it has a almost a built-in marketing um, value because it's easy to to go to somebody and say, Look, you know, you've prospered in this community. Can you give back a little bit so that we can continue to prosper as a community? And right. here's the business plan for this network. And that's, you know, that's that's a great point. And um, when you look at community development, a lot of times community development is driven by nonprofit organizations because what makes a small town, especially um, vibrant, a lot of times is. Um, the, the sorts of uh, opportunities they have, uh, and in many cases, uh, nonprofit groups play an important part of that. Um, maybe you, maybe your city wants to build a new, a big new accessible playground, so persons with limited mobility can use that playground. Well, the city may say, "Gee, we really want to do that, but golly, we can't raise taxes to do that." So you get a group of, uh, of citizens organized and say, "We need to raise quarter million dollars for this accessible playground." And within a few weeks, they've got the pledges and the donations in to do that, and it gets built. Um, you, you see that you, that model used in all kinds of community projects. And I would submit that broadband should be of a similar nature because uh, an accessible playground or an aquatic center or something like that is pretty pretty great thing for a community to have, a feather in its cap to draw and retain residents. But having municipal bro- or having a broadband system, whether it's municipally owned or not, is huge. And you know, one of the things, Craig, that I've advocated to our members, it's been kind of a, um, it's kind of been a given in Iowa, at least, and I don't know about other parts of the country, that if you want to build a municipal broadband system, you got to figure out a way to pay for it. But you're not going to pay for it with tax-supported bonds, right. because because there's the stigma that you that nobody would approve a bond issue for something like this. And I'm I'm I've talked to a lot of our members about the, that it's time to start rethinking that mentality. Because right. and I'll give you an example. We have a small community in in central Iowa that is very interested in in broadband. They've got an economic development group, a couple of city councilmen, and they're trying to figure out a way they can do that. They've talked to the existing providers. They're getting nowhere with them. And they've actually lost a couple of businesses to a nearby larger city because those businesses were told it was going to cost, you know, many, many, many thousands of dollars just to get a 100-meg circuit they needed. Mm -hmm. So this community is talking about how do we get into broadband. They don't have another utility that they can really use as a financing wing. You know, they're talking about maybe we should go and have a general obligation bond issue to pay for this. In other words, the network costs would be 
um, supported by, ultimately backed by the taxpayers of the community. And they were shy about that. But this is the same community that four years ago had 70-plus percent of their citizens vote yes on a bond issue to build a $5.5 million aquatic center. And I said to, the, to one of the city council persons, I said, I said, don't you think that it's just as important for your community to thrive in the future to have fiber to the home, broadband, as it is to have that aquatic center? Because you know there are people that voted yes on that bond issue that agreed to let their taxes go up that will never dip a toe in that water. They did it because they thought, you know what, this makes my community better, and if my community is better, I'm good. They also realized that their taxes are going to go up from it. And with a, bond, with a bond issue for an aquatic center, you can't charge enough money to go swimming to make up for the cost to operate that and pay that debt off. Right. So uh, people made the conscious decision that, yeah, it'll bring in a little revenue, but it'll never be enough to pay, to pay it off. And we're okay with that because it's good for the community. So why can't we make that same argument to citizens, taxpayers uh, on broadband? Uh, why can't we say to them, you know what? We're not going to guarantee you that the revenues from the sale of services is going to pay this thing off. It may end up being a little tax money in the end that supports it. But think about what it does for your community as a whole. It does mm -hmm. the same thing or even more than these other community improvements that you've approved bond issues for. Right. And so I, I think you're going to see some communities move away from that stigma against general obligation tax-supported bonds for broadband and say, you know what, this is so important to the community, we're going to put the full faith and credit of the entire city behind it, and we're going to do this thing. Mm -hmm. I would also gather that if you start a project, a, um, a, a broadband project, with a high-visibility pilot project, that the success of that would could likely give you leverage to then be able to look at a bond measure without everybody having a you know a, a coronary on on the spot by virtue of yeah. the success you know people being able to see oh this is what broadband is this is what we yeah. can do with I talked to one of our member communities that was talking about um, well we might just get into this and and build fiber to our business community and our tech park and our downtown because those are the people that are really yammering for faster internet right now. And I said to them, I said, that's great. That's a good economic development move. But don't go down that path unless you're prepared to build that network out to everyone else because John Smith, the owner of XYZ Manufacturing, is going to be on 100 meg internet at work all day, and he's going to go home, and the best he can get is 1.5 meg DSL. Guess what he's going to do? He's going to be knocking on your door saying, when the heck are you going to build this to my house? Right. So uh, it, you're absolutely right. Those kind of pilot projects can build community momentum. Um, I really love the whole Google Fiber idea of these fiber hoods. Mm -hmm. um, I really, and I've told some members about that. I said, you know, if this is something you wanted to do, kind of a phased build out, you could adopt that model. I don't know if you can call it fiber hood illegally, but um, <laughs> but you could adopt that model and say, hey, we're going to build where you want us most. Tell us mm -hmm. what you want, and, and, and it may take us three or four years to get it done, but we're going to do it, and we're going to immediately get revenue. You know, The revenue is going to start coming in from day one. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, we're, we're just about out of time. Um, so I, I gather that you're bullish on, on the whole you know, utilities being involved in, in um, broadband, but in a minute, what would be your word to a public utility that's sitting on the fence wants to go but hasn't quite dipped that toe in the water in a minute, mm -hmm. why should they put their toe in the water? Well, I think that they, they should put their toe in the water because um, in many cases the their founding fathers of their community took some risks a long, long time ago that made their community what it is today. And just like 100 years ago, communities were building their own electric networks because nobody would build it for them, and just like 75 years ago, uh, farmers were gathering together to build telephone networks because nobody would build them for them. Um, you just have communities that are looking at broadband the same way. They've got to go in with their eyes wide open. It is not a panacea, and every community is different. And some communities just don't have the makeup that makes it as easy a sell as it is in other communities. But you got to have you, so you got to go in with your eyes wide open and talk to lots of people who've done it and get their best advice on how to do it right. Excellent. That will work. And so, Curtis, thank you very much for uh, for being our guest today. 
and for all your uh, helpful insights. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to to the workshop in Atumwa. We 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 settled on the date, so we're looking at October 17th, and we're going to do this workshop. Yeah. Get a lot of people, push them all. You know, get them to get that toe in the water. That's that's the purpose there. Absolutely. So I look forward yeah, to seeing everyone up there. Communities owe it to themselves to investigate it. Absolutely. All righty. And to our audience, thank you very much for listening in uh, to the show. Join us again soon. We'll bring you another great show and another great guest. Take care. Have a wonderful day.